Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Hype A with me, Chris Salina, as your host. I'd like to thank you so much for tuning into all of the episodes this season, season four. We are just about to wrap up season four with the season finale. I'm very, very excited about this episode. As you know, I'm an artist and a mystic. But to be honest with you, Frank Bowling has been my hero from the beginning of me starting my journey as an abstract artist. I do get emotional on this episode, just be warned. But I want to thank you again for tuning into the episodes from this season. We had Yuri Budzi, who started off the season talking about acting and modeling and writing. He's a an actor as well as a communication coach and life coach from Puglia, Italy. We had episode two with Frank Mulvey and Giuseppe Di Leo, both artists and professors based in Montreal, Canada. We had Andres Bustamante from Colombia, South America, based in Nashville, who's also an artist. And episode four, we had Marco Verbos, a fashion stylist and a friend of mine, based in London. He's originally from Croatia. He's a fashion director as well. Episode five, we had Kay Gesai, my mate Kay. He's born in Zambia, but based in London. He's a wonderful figurative artist, painter and illustrator. We had Vineta Kaulaka, an artist, wonderful painter from Riga, Latvia, who I went to visit and see her wonderful, incredible, spectacular solo show at the museum in Latvia. So have a listen to the episode if you haven't listened to it. It's really worth it. And we have Caitlin Flood, Molly No from Wales, based in Wales, a wonderful, beautiful artist as well. Sean McDowell, an artist and curator and founder of the art residency Demoni Danzanti in the hills of Italy, Sabina Hills in Italy. He's also represented by Hannah Barry Gallery. We had Amy Dawson, writer, British writer, editor and speaker on all things art world who has worked with the arts newspaper. Tom Pike on our bonus episode, which we dropped yesterday from Stockport, England. He used to be a fashion person, a fashion designer at Adidas, and he has an MA in menswear fashion from the Royal College of Arts. In another bonus episode, we had Aaron Marin, who's an illustrator based in New York, who served in the US military. So let's begin and let's welcome Frank Bowling and Ben Bowling, his son, who's going to be speaking on behalf of Sir Frank Bowling, his father. Hello, and welcome back to another episode with me, Cristalina, as your host. The arts can feel like a private members club. Hype A gives you access. Hype A is a podcast for all people interested in learning about the arts, stories, tools, tips and tricks from leaders in the creative field. If you want to be inspired or want to get into the arts, you've come to the right place. Tune in and turn on every Thursday. Before we begin, I'd like to thank you so much for following Hype A on Spotify or wherever you get your favourite podcasts. And... Um, giving us a rating as an exchange of your appreciation. We have Frank Bowling's son, Ben Bowling, who is currently at SF MoMA San Francisco for his father's show. Now, for those of you who don't know who Mr. Frank Bowling is, I don't know where you've been living under a rock, potentially. He is a legend in the abstraction and art world in general, and to be honest, doesn't really need much of an introduction. He's been hailed as one of the finest British artists of his generation, born in British Guyana in 1934. Bowling arrived in London in 1953, graduating from the Royal College of Art with a silver medal for painting in 1962. And he also went to Chelsea Art College like me. After moving to New York in 1966, Bowling's commitment to modernism meant he was increasingly focused on material, process and colour, so that by 1971, he had abandoned the use of figurative imagery, 
Bowling's iconic map paintings, which include the stenciled landmasses of South America, Africa and Australia, embody his transition from figuration to pure abstraction. He's been exhibiting all over the world, to be honest. Um, there's so much to be said on him. We're going to hear more about it, but go and check out his work. If you haven't, go and see his exhibitions at Hauser & Worth, um, I think in, I think that's in New York at this moment, and uh, currently SF MoMA, soon to be in uh, SF. So let's let's welcome Ben. How are you doing, Ben? And how is Mr. Bowling doing today I'm very well thank you very much indeed san francisco is great it's a little chilly and uh, foggy as uh, as it can be but the uh, exhibition it's called uh, frank bowling the new york years 1966 to 75 uh looks absolutely great it's a beautiful exhibition and uh, i would encourage everyone who is in the bay area to go and visit and then next up is um Housenworth, west hollywood um, so we fly into Los Angeles at the weekend, um, where he opens a show called Landscape, which is all new work, all mostly from 2021, 2022. So everything is from within the last five years. Okay, lovely. So that's Housing Worth in LA. Um, so just, um, just at the, let's just talk about your dad's um processes or maybe how he began. Uh, you know, moving from the figurative to to pure abstraction, and it's very common for abstract artists. I started off as figurative as well. Um, do you do you know if it was like a particular experience that changed him into going into abstraction, or just a need and necessity to do that? That's a good question. So uh, he was trained in the British, the English, I would say, art school tradition. Uh, Conventional. He went to the Royal College of Art in 1959, graduated with a silver me silver medal for painting in 1962. Um, you know, trained in the life room where he spent many hours doing still lives. He was particularly interested in things like um, meat, so he had a big bucket of things like uh, cows' heads and sheep's heads that he kept in the bucket of formaldehyde in the life room. Um, his figurative work is very sort of Goya-esque, um, expressionist work, dealing with quite challenging topics like childbirth, destitution, disfigurement, and so on. Um, so he continued to make that kind of work, I would say, up until about 1963, 64. Then he went through a kind of pop art phase um, of work where he was making, you know, work kind of... Uh, I suppose inspired by the kind of pop goes the weasel kind of uh, pop goes the easel I should say Pete Blake and and you know Warhol and so on um, and then gradually began to use sort of stenciling and um, uh, use of kind of fairly sort of structured images and made a kind of transition away from figuration into abstraction Crucial moment, I think, is the move to New York in 1966 with the map paintings and gradually anything figurative began to disappear completely. And by the sort of 1973, any kind of figurative imagery has gone and he starts to pour paint, um, you know, abandoning the easel entirely. And uh, so I think it's, the move from a kind of an English uh, art school tradition into, you know, American, in, into the USA, where he's encountering people like Rothko. Um, he's encountering people like Barnett Newman. His master's dissertation was on Mondrian. So I guess the, you know, the roots of abstraction are there even in his art school years. So not a moment, I think more of a process. Mm -hmm. And his work to me has always seemed very American. Um to me at least and kind of like some somehow escaping uh with, with obviously such vibrancy like this push and escapism escapism towards something new like a new form of painting a new form of abstraction um which i think a lot of his contemporaries at the time who were based in the uk had also found that um let's say um 
welcome from the States. Yeah, I think that, so I think of his work as a kind of collision between the English landscape tradition, his kind of, his kind of artistic mentor, his psychic mentor is, uh, is Turner, very mm -hmm. also influenced by Constable um, Gainsborough, but he says he's not trying to make Turners and, and, and Gainsboroughs and Constables. He's trying to do something very different. It's a kind of collision between the English landscape tradition and, and American modernism. And that is still true today. You know, he's 89 years old. He's literally just left the studio in London just, just oh a few God. minutes ago. So he's, he's in the studio as often as he can be, accompanied by his grandson, uh, Frederick, my son Frederick. So he's usually there about three hours, three times a week. Um... I think that his move, he found England and the English kind of painting traditions to be ultimately quite stifling. Mm -hmm. You know, clearly he learned um, many of the techniques that he uses today um, with a kind of concern about geometry, palette, uh, about how colours mix um, on, the, on, on the carrier surface. But New York gave him the freedom to express himself in whatever way he wished to. I think he got a strong feeling on arriving in New York, his first visits in 1961 and again in 63, to uh, kind of sense the vibe and, and the feeling of the possibilities of freedom that came from art in America. And he was encouraged by people like, um, like Larry Rivers and the critic Clement Greenberg, with whom he became a good friend to that, that there were there were no no-go areas for artists no no-go areas for black artists or any artist for that matter in the USA and it has given him the freedom to express himself in whichever way he wishes to uh, as an artist and do you think do you think um sort of culturally speaking you know where he was born um do you think that has had some sort of like I wouldn't say dormant impact, uh, but some sort of impact on him and this 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 need to to express in such a visceral way creatively. So uh, I would say yes and no. I'm just trying to kind of ch channel my dad. His first reaction yeah. would be no, mm, mm, no, 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 none of that. Um, he he said he didn't know anything about art in Guyana, you know, continental South America didn't know anything about art. He was interested in poetry and literature. When he arrived in England in 1953, he wanted to be, he thought he might be a, de a detective. His father was a policeman. He thought he might be a great detective. And failing that, a poet or a writer. Um, so he, what everything he, he learned about painting, he learned in England in the first instance, going to the National mm. Gallery, going to the Tate, um, observing the artists around him, his his contemporaries, Kitai, Derek Boschier, um, the people more senior to him in, in England, you know, older than him, like um, Francis Bacon. Uh, but the idea that there was anything kind of West Indian um, or Caribbean about his work, he would, you know, he would, up until relatively recently, would absolutely reject, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and the reason that he rejected that was he found himself uh, being seen as kind of exotic. No, I totally understand. And I say this with the most compassion as well. I just want to say, because, you know, I'm part South American myself. My my mother's side is Colombian. I'm Colombian. And I'm. it comes through as much as I've tried to reject it. Um, you know, that that is. And I, I do understand what where you're going to here. So um, I'd love yeah. to hear more about this. Yeah. Yeah. So I think he, it was certainly up until about 1989, Anybody asking him that question would get, you know, a blunt refusal and yeah. probably probably a few uh, unkind words as well. 1989, he went uh, visited um, Guyana for for what turns out to be the last time. He went with my brother Sasha Bowling, mm -hmm. and while there, he began to kind of see aspects of Guyana in his work. He began to see the rainforest. He began to see the um, the sort of the, the haze over the mudflats, over the Essequibo River, the Berbice, and began to kind of accept that there was something there. Then his great friend, uh, Spencer Richards, who's actually here with us in San Francisco, 
began a friendship in the early 1990s and was actually the perfect interlocutor. Spencer was from Guyana, but a, you know, a long, long, long time New Yorker, aficionado of art and culture. And he really pointed out to Frank that you could see Guyana in the work. Mm -hmm. So I think that what Dad would say now is that he would say that uh, when a child is born, opens his eyes or her eyes for the first time, looks out on the world, of course, the things that are out there influence how they see, how they see the world, the things that are imprinted in them. And that the light, the color, uh, the geometry, the geography comes out in the work. So I think there's a kind of tension between being trained as an artist, which is very much in both the English painterly tradition and American modernism, but if you like the unconscious expression of the things that he would have seen as a child and as an, as an adolescent, he left Guyana age 19 comes out in the work. So mm -hmm. I think consciously he would reject the idea unconsciously it's there vivid for everybody to see. Um, did, did, um, did Mr. Bowling ever feel um, like he, 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 um, like very detached from where he was born by any chance, apart from his conscious decision to sort of cut ties from that sort of, uh, let's say, placement in the art world. Yeah. So, all right, Guyana in the 50s uh, was a place that many people wanted to leave to find a better life elsewhere. And he had a very difficult relationship with his father, who was a policeman who was very brutal to him. And he said one of his, you know, a kind of life sadness is that when he left Guyana, his father didn't even say goodbye to him. So he he left Guyana aged 19 years old. And when he said when he arrived in England, when he arrived in London, he said, I knew I was home. Yeah. It's this feeling. And I think, you know, uh, I grew up in the English countryside and, you know, I know that I was born in London. I know that feeling that, you know, there's something about London, which kind of, um, you know, you can be from anywhere and yet still be a Londoner. I think that's one of its, you know, uh, an, an important quality. Um, mm. I think when he left Guyana, I think he knew that he was not going to go back. I think he knew that he was never going to settle back there. I think his mother wanted him to. She was a, a shopkeeper, a milliner, a businesswoman, dressmaker. Mm. I think she hoped that he would come back and run the, 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 the store. And I think it was an enduring sadness of hers that that never happened. Uh, but I think that maybe less, to some extent, a rejection, I think more of an abandonment. Mm. Um, nonetheless, it comes out in the work, not just the, um, in, the, in, in, in the palette and in the landscape, but deliberately. So when he left London for New York in 1966, he took... Uh, a number of canvases, probably about 30, with a stencil of the Bowling's Variety Store, which is his mother's house, mm -hmm. uh, silk screened onto the canvas, um, done by the textile department at Camberwell School of Art or in collaboration with him. And those canvases, very vivid, some of them by pop art, like um, Cover Girl, which has got this kind of, you know, this model standing in front of it with mother's house behind and then gradually the mother's house gets erased and sort of moves into the background, gets covered in layers of paint. And in this exhibition here at uh, the Museum of Modern Art in San Francisco, you can see that transition from these very vivid references mm. to mother's house uh, to the more kind of obscured and, 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 and covered uh, images. And I think that there was a deliberate attempt to mm. take home with him, that he'd kind of... It was an image taken in 1953. It's a great image of the, the variety store with his mother standing outside with the Union Jack uh, flying. I think he, you know, he takes that from Guyana to London and then he takes his canvases with him from London to New York. So yeah. I think, you know, there's a deep ambivalence about Guyana and about home yeah. in, in, in his work and in him. Understandably. And, uh, and he also received a, an OBE as well. Um, what was his thoughts? How did he feel about that? Well, and a bit, and, and and a knighthood, of course. Um, and a knighthood, yes. Of course, he's he is Sir Frank. Um, yeah, he's got, uh, I would say, relatively unconventional views on 
Britain uh, empire and the role of empire in Guyana. Um, he, uh, I think he would say, what's not to like about those kinds of accolades? Becoming a Royal Academician, he was the first uh, black person in to become a Royal Academician in, in Britain, the OBE, OBE and, um, and the knighthood. Um, you know, he was, what, 87 when he got the knighthood? Um, his recognition as an artist has come late in his life. Yeah, you know, it was, I remember. We, we could talk about that a little, um, perhaps in a minute. You know, he mm. went through the 80s, 90s, and into the early 2000s without any gallery representation in Britain. I mean, he never, he didn't have gallery representation in Britain until the 21st century, even though he arrived in England you know, and graduated as an artist in the 1960s. I think he feels proud of the achievements. I think there is a, um, a, a you know, a degree of skepticism um, about uh, what it means, all this kind of royal patronage. But on the on the whole, I think he's um, quite proud to be a knight of the realm. It's almost like he's he's done his duty, hasn't he? He came and he conquered, <laughs> to be honest, well, and is representing as an ambassador around the world. You know. Yeah, I think there's something in that. I, you know, one of his characteristics is an incredible work ethic. You know, at 89, he's still in the studio three times a week, and when he's not in the studio, he obsesses about the painting. You know, mm. uh, I visit him at least three times a day. You know, I'm there usually seven o'clock in the morning to see how he's been overnight. You know, he's an elderly man. Mm -hmm. um, and the conversation always moves to what's going on in the studio, what he wants to do next. And he'll lie there in bed, staring at the ceiling. And it's like, what are you staring at, Dad? He's like, I'm making paintings. The paint is moving across the canvas in front of his eyes. He sees the work moving as he lies there in bed, looking at the ceiling. So that work ethic, I mean, until very recently, he worked seven days a week, 365 days a year, was in the studio at least once, usually twice a day. Um, so yeah, he's put in the work, he's put in the time. And um, I think he's, I would say he's on the way to becoming a global icon. British yeah. to the to the bone, only ever been British. Um, he has represented the USA um, in the yeah. Dakar Biennale. Uh, he feels Guyanese. He recognizes that South America is the is the continent of his origin, but you know he's um, he's a kind of British cosmopolitan. I would say, like me, like me a little bit. Um... Yeah, <laughs> exactly, and uh, you know your your dad has given me so much hope um, as an artist. I would like to say because I've been quite late in my recognition as an artist. Um, in in London, London's a, is a hard city to crack as an artist, and I, I myself also travelled often to New York, and I've lived in the States as well. And I'm I'm actually thinking about moving back again um, for the reasons that we speak about, um, especially because abstraction still in the UK is still it's still emerging. It's still in the process of becoming, which can be very frustrating as an artist, I have to say. And I think only a few years ago they had a, a major quote-unquote show at the Royal Academy um, on abstraction. They only just recently had a Helen Frankenthaler um, exhibition, Gagosian and Dulwich Picture Gallery, which I was also involved in. Um, so it's slow, you know, it's slow, it's frustrating. And, you know, we we need more abstraction here, I think, in the UK. I'm, I'm, I'm no longer based in London. I'm in the countryside, very pretty English countryside now, but still. Um, what are yeah, your thoughts I mean, I, on that? I, I, yeah, I think that... Look, First thing to say is that I'm uh, in, but not not of the art world. Um, my my career is in criminology. I've been a criminologist for thirty five years. Um, my role now is to support my dad, you know, as an older man, and to, to you know help him manage his career and to secure his his legacy. Uh, so you know, I always caveat any comments that I make about the art world by saying, "Oh, yeah. I'm just a criminologist," you know, don't ask me too hard, don't ask me any hard <laughs> questions. Um, well, there yeah, is, I, there is, there is also some crime in the art world as well. So that, well, that yeah, does that, happen. That, Forgery yeah, no, and I, yeah, I'm a year away from retiring, retiring from academic life and throwing <laughs> yeah. my lot in, 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 in with, with, with the artists. But um, oh, yeah, good. I mean, the, in, it's in good the to have you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> uh, in the 1980s, when my dad's work became very 
um, kind of dense with lots of uh, kind of built up surfaces. Um, It was a time, I think, when the kind of view was that painting was dead. Painting, you know, as as an entire discipline, leaving aside abstract uh, uh, painting as a kind of subgenre, if you like. Um, He showed at the Serpentine Gallery in 1986. And there were a number of kind of really angry letters to the arts press saying, what is this? This is, you know, who who is this person? Why are you featuring this work, um, this bowling? There are so many other artists out there that you could feature. Um, and what is this stuff anyway? It's not even painting. Is it, you know, it's it, I don't even know what it is. That was the kind of the tone of this. Um, he didn't have representation. The work didn't sell. Um, it was thought of as a kind of curiosity, you know, um, photography, um, uh, conceptual art video were on the ascendancy and painting was Mm -hmm. declared dead so i mean i think that you know clearly abstract painting is more vibrant in north america than it is in the uk i think that's true but i do think that there are signs that Mm -hmm. abstract painting is kind of still alive and kicking there is um uh dad has a work in uh, a show uh, that opens on the 1st of June um, with Gagosian, which is a, a kind of, they're taking over the entire, all their spaces given over to abstract expressionism. I heard so, about that. I'd love to go to that, actually, that exhibition. I, I know a few people who will be attending the the, pre, the PV. And that's, you know, he's got, um, my dad's got a work in there, which is about um, 12 feet tall. Um, it's an extraordinary thing that has this, you know, incredibly built up surfaces. It has, Chinese tea in it and the tea kind of um, combined with the ammonia that he uses to kind of it was almost as though there was it kind of made tea on the surface of the work and mm. you can see you can see the Chinese tea leaves in the painting it's um, kind of visceral I suppose mm-hmm. um, and I think that abstract painting has the power to engage the eye engage the spirit the emotions in a way that uh, no other art form can. So, uh, yeah, so here's to the the continued rise and rise of abstract painting in England. Hooray. Um, and <laughs> is there any, like, significance um, with the materials that he, like this, you said, you mentioned Chinese tea leaves. Um, was it just that pure experimentation aspect of it? Yeah, I think that his kind of mantra is that the subject matter of his paintings is paint itself. Mm. He and he believes that that was true of the old masters. Yeah. Um, that if you go to the edges of a Titian um, or a Constable, or you look at a um, you know a, a, a late Turner, that you'll see the origins of abstract art right there. Uh, with Turner, absolutely, it's pure abstraction. I love Turner, and it's him capturing light again as well. Yeah. yeah. But, but even Constable, if you look at the mm-hmm. you know, Constable skies, um, uh, it, it's, you know, it's about the the movement, the brushwork, the palette knife, the movement of the paint across the surface of the canvas. That's the thing which excites and which engages him. Mm-hmm. So in, and in terms, I mean, he's always used materials that uh, were innovative. So um, he was friends with Lenny Bacour, the the paint manufacturer. In the 1960s, he would get early samples. He was an early adopter of acrylic paint, and he loves the way that acrylic paint can be diluted um, and laid on thick. Um, but he also likes. Um, he was using spray paint uh, in the in the in the 60s, per, uh, metallic and pearlescent mm-hmm. powders. He uses a lot of ammonia. He's using a lot of fluorescent paints. Um, he used found he uses found materials. In the um, SF MoMA show, there are things like uh, children's toys, acupuncture needles. There's tea in some of these works. Detritus kind of rubbish from the studio floor, packing materials. Um, this really kind of explodes in the 80s and mm. is very much present in the uh, in the current work. There's one work that's got um, cut up banknotes. Um, there's a painting called Looking West again that's got medical equipment when he came out of hospital in 2020 he brought a big bag of kind of medical equipment that had been physically inside him um that's in the work 
covered in paint as well. Yeah, we had to um, <laughs> tread carefully with the U.S. authorities in, uh, you know, the transportation of you know human <laughs> human tissue. Um, but yeah, they are kind of um, they're kind of bi- autobiographical. Mm. You know, the, the 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 paintings tell the story of their making. You mm-hmm. can actually see the kind of way in which they were made by the way that the materials, whether it's paint, liquid paint, or the found materials move across the surface. And that that's what's also so incredible about abstraction and also um, Mr. Bowling's work is what I call him Mr. Bowling. I don't know, I just call him Mr. Bowling. Um, is, um, is the fact that even though he moved away from figurative, um, you know, the, the figurative, the figure is still present in the work. You know, and that's why for me as an artist, um, and that's why high pay listeners, please go and see more abstraction and please go and see Mr. Bowling's works as well. So you see the gestural shapes, the movement, um, and the the presence of the human outside of the, of just the physical vessel. And, mm-hmm. you know, I know that now he he's at a later stage of his life. He's like a couple years older than my dad. So I have huge compassion and empathy um um with that because it's such a it's such a weird time as as a child I think of of a father who you know he's kind of you know stepping to the other side the other realm you know um how 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 do you feel about this do you because I'd like to I'd like to ask you on a personal level but also in with regard to the institution now I feel like the art world and I I can you don't have to say I I can (laughs) um the art world, the industry has a little bit of a sickening approach to people who um, are very well known as artists and then they pass on and then suddenly there's this whole irreverential way of, um, I don't know, um, promoting this artist's work. Uh, and, you know, they haven't even been laid to rest yet. So on a personal level, what are your thoughts on that? And then on a sort of industry level, you don't have to answer that. (laughs) No, that's fine. Well, so in 2018, I went to a workshop, uh, Sasha and I went to a workshop in Berlin, um, uh, an organization called the Institute for Artist Estates. Uh, I think a very good organization. We were two of like maybe 25 sons, daughters, grandchildren, um sort of godchildren you know some some few studio assistants that had, were responsible for managing or either actively exist you know managing an artist's estate and just of an artist who passed away or were anticipating that they would have to do that at some point in the future right and what we realized quite early on is that uh legacy uh legacy management is Many really defined by the death of the artist. You, mm-hmm. That what you're that what you're doing really in uh, preparing for legacy is preparing for how you're going to manage um, the later years of and um, you know the death of the artist. That's you know kind of it, it defines the job. Um, and I know that you know Dad had a lot of difficulty with. Yes, he kept sort of saying, "What is? What do you mean by legacy? What do you? What, what is? What is all this stuff about legacy? I don't really don't get it." And then, after about three months, he said, "You know, I I understand what it is now. It's um, honoring the dead." Right. And that was a you know it was a sobering moment. Um, you know, I remember going around uh, the Tate archive, um, looking at you know all of these artists' archives that are located at, at Tate. It's an extraordinary place, uh, worth a visit. And, um, you know, we were scolded by my stepmom who said, you know, you're talking about us as though we were dead already. And yeah. that's kind of what, what you you know, you do have to, you, you know, you, it's, it's, it's unavoidable, actually, even yeah. though I think English society, you know, doesn't deal with death particularly well. You know, even our neighbours across, uh, across the Irish Sea I think do it a lot better than we do. And certainly, you know, um, places like Mexico, whatever continental Europe, I think are much better at this. Um, hard to talk about, you know, most people in England, I think, I think this may be true, don't have a will, mm-hmm. you know, which is, you know, creates a mess. 
So um, from a personal point of view, it's on our minds all the time. I mean, I was in nine years in personal psychotherapy and it was like, you know, this is a big topic twice a week, a big topic. Um, uh, but it is also about, you know, thinking about what happens. It's the afterlife of the studio, of the physical studio. How do you preserve the studio when an artist is no longer there and make it accessible mm -hmm. to the many people, pilgrims mm -hmm. perhaps, who want to come mm -hmm. and experience and be in the space? How do you work with museums to make sure that paintings are in the collections? I mean, Dad's work is in many, I think about 50 institutions worldwide, mostly in the US and the UK. But then there is, how do you ensure that the works are in European museums or maybe further afield? Um, the industry, yeah, I mean, I suppose, you know, what's the job of a commercial gallery? It's to sell paintings. Exactly. Um, I don't think I need to say any more than that. Um, uh, 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 of course, the commercial gallery also does have the best interests of the artist you know, a good gallery has the interest of the artist and the artist's family in mind, making sure that that you know that the artist is properly represented in the canon of art history. Um, but I don't think you know, you know, I don't think you can criticize a gallery for trying to do what it does best. Um, and the industry, I mean, I'm a relatively a relative newcomer to Instagram, and I do notice. The reactions to the passing of artists on Instagram. It's very interesting how people, I think, naturally and inevitably kind of recall their relationship with the artist that's gone, posting images of their relationship with them. Yeah. Um, it's almost like we want to kind of touch something, hold on to mm. hold on to something. So yeah. I would tend to take a generous and compassionate view. Um, grief is a weird thing. Mm, grief is a weird right. thing that brings out lots um, lots of emotions lots of, yeah, yeah lots of emotions <laughs> including kind of strange things like the anger towards you know the, the person who has died you yes. know all the disappointments and frustrations that were unresolved in in, in their life yeah. um personally i feel extremely lucky that yeah. you know i have and sasha and i have a really incredible relationship with our dad we we meet every friday at four o'clock to you know talk through the things that are going on how the work is going what we're doing um and we know we have different mums so mm -hmm. you know we sometimes ask ourselves how did this happen how did it, it it come to be that you know this 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 old man would be you know surrounded by his now you know not so young sons talking about how we work together and with our stepmom yeah. rachel and how we're going to make the you know make the best out of the work that he's done the work is fantastic he's put the work in yeah. You know, he, his work touches eight separate decades from the 50s to the 2020s, 65 years of practice. And I think that we owe it to him to make sure that um, the work gets its due, gets seen, um, becomes part of, um, you know, the world of art history. Yeah. And he's he's part of such a, a great canon as well. Um, I mean, as as you pointed out, and I did as well, he's iconic. He's a legend already, you know, Um he doesn't have to be a legend, you know, not here in the physical realm. Um, uh, it's funny because I, I remember speaking to your father um, at my show um, on my MA, actually. And um, I he mentioned um, that my works kind of have like a sim my installation works have a bit of a Sam Gilliam-esque um, mm -hmm. sort of interpretation. And I loved having a conversation with him about him <laughs> and him talking about the times in New York with Sam Gilliam. Um, I think he punched him in the face or something. <laughs> I think he told me that he just had, because I, I was speaking quite candidly, as you can probably understand already now through the conversation, I'm I'm not, I, I don't shy away from, from saying things. Um, but I was thinking, you know, because I said to him, your dad, you know, I, I went to New York and, you know, I, I didn't want to be typecast. I didn't want to be seen as, you know, uh, like a mixed art, like a mixed race, quote unquote, artist uh, or even a woman artist. I just wanted to be seen as an artist, an abstract artist. And he said he sort of found the same thing. I remember him saying that he didn't want to be seen as a black artist. And he had fights with Sam Gilliam about this. I remember him telling me that. And uh 
yeah that lasted months at points and he kept saying I remember and just recalling about the conversation I had with him um he kept saying that yes his work is incredible but they the institutions kept putting his work next to Sam's work and I saw it you know in the states his work and then Sam Gilliam's work um just just across the board um and I recall that conversation in my mind when I went to see um Sam Gilliam's last last paintings at Pace Gallery in London um and I did cry I cried because um I'm getting emotional now even you know he he really was such an incredible artist you can see the impact that Sam sorry I wasn't expecting this um had on my work sorry um had on my work and um and I was I was looking at his last paintings and the factor of time there and those works would never be made again um but I guess it's a different setup you know what what you uh have as a family is seems like a family atelier a, a business that's going on where your your son is involved um and and so many others T tell me about that mm -hmm. tell us about that I was just a little bit overwhelmed. I wasn't expecting to be so emotional, but I am yeah. so emotional about, you know, the, the artists that have led the way for me. And I'm conscious of that as an artist and how I can lead the way for others. And that's why we've also created Hype A for this reason as well. Yes, no, I understand that. And I, it's very touching. I think that art does touch one. And, you know, the sad moment that an artist passes away, you do... You know, it does confront you with the fact that this work on, you know, this this is where it ends, um, that no more work will be made. I think that taking a a kind of positive and forward-looking approach to this, though, there are so many aspects of an artist's practice, of their history, of their stories. And one of the things that kind of I think is true about art artists, which is probably not true um, about almost any other sphere of activity, is that the work lives on. Yeah. You could say that about literature, but, you know, you've got to, got to delve into that and you've got to be familiar with a particular language you have to be able to read. But, you know, the artist's work is there for all to see. Okay, people who are blind, obviously not, but even there, I would say... With my I think with your work, father's work, yeah. Yeah, you can touch it. You can touch <laughs> it. And you can, I, I was... um at a museum in um, in Italy, in Rome, a couple of weeks ago in the uh, in the um, uh, Musee Borghese, the Galleria Borghese, and there was a, a, um, a blind man who was being allowed to touch the sculptures with his gloves and actually feeling the sculptures, actually kind of seeing the work with his hands, which is incredibly moving, fantastic. But um, so I think that what, uh, my job is my my brother's job and the other family members in the studio team who are involved is to bring life to the work to and immortality is perhaps overstating it but to to give the work to give the artist an afterlife um so we're doing things like for example an oral history project mm -hmm. so we're starting with the over 80s um but we're trying to interview we've got a list of about 50 or 60 people that we'll be interviewing in the coming months and years to capture their recollections of Frank and his work. Um, mm. We are looking very closely at the inventory. We're looking closely. We just, we, we're seeking to find out more information about ex-inventory works, to talk to the collectors, to talk to museum uh, directors and curators who've worked uh, with the art to discover more, to kind of build up a, you know, a, a, a picture. In the fullness of time, I would like to think that there will be an archival book that um, will, you know, bring out the photography and the um, the exhibition invitations and so on. Um, my dad was a great writer. He uh, he he wrote uh, art criticism between 1969 and the kind of mid to late 70s. So we're working with the Museum Ludwig in Cologne to do um, uh, an edited collection of his writings. Um, we're kind of tracking down all the print editions. We've recently done a show with Sam Cornish at the um, University of Greenwich of his sculptures. 
So I think it's about amassing this material um, in order to kind of create a full and comprehensive picture of, of dad's practice through the 65 years of, of his working life. Um, and family, I mean, you know, family is very important to my dad. Um, you know, he has, um, you know, had three sons. One, uh, Dan, sadly passed away in his late 30s. Two surviving sons. Um, five grandchildren. Um, two stepdaughters and a, grand, a grandchild from one of the stepdaughters. Um, a great-grandchild. I have a, a two-and-a-half-year-old son, so he's a great-grandfather. Amazing. Um, on his wellies and literally get on... Splashing around, splashing around in the paint. It's quite an extraordinary. Um, he's called um, Aniron uh, Toussaint. Um, so, yeah, I think um, it's hard to think of an artist studio as a business. I, you know, it, 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 I guess it kind of is, you know, particularly, you know, um, where we are at the moment. Mm. Uh, and it does feel like managing a family business, but really what I see it as is supporting the artist allow him to continue to make to make extraordinary paintings so you know he's got this painting in the Gagosian show opening first of june and he also has um a, a a tall painting i guess it's more than 12 feet tall in the royal academy summer exhibition so people in london will be able to get to see his work and i don't know whether you've heard about this um uh this digital artwork at piccadilly circus Oh okay, my gosh, so with Circa. Is that with Circa? Yeah. 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 So at 8.23, every evening between um, now and the end of June, so the whole of May, whole of June, and the Piccadilly Circus um, billboard lights will have a Frank Bowling painting. It's an extraordinary thing. It's like being bathed in these in this incredible light. So yeah, yeah, that's what it's about. It's, um, you know, an artist who is elderly who needs a lot of support this is an elderly man but also as an artist and making sure that he can continue to work and continue to be seen but also making sure that his work will live on long after he's passed away i'm sure it will and uh you know he he also had a, a show at hannah barry gallery um with an artist actually two artists uh natalia gonzalez martin who's someone i've also lived with um interestingly and exhibited with too um but sean mcdowell who i've just um recorded for hype a as well so he's got some interesting views on uh um on art making in general and also just <clears throat> living in peckham <laughs> as well before he moved out to italia um but yeah it's lovely to see um his work with uh let's say new contemporaries um i mean i'm just gonna put it out there because why not um i would i would absolutely love to have one painting even if it's like a tiny little dot of a small little minuscule painting next door or right right next to your your father's work it would just be that's it i'm done with my life uh, you know i'm happy uh forever um but you know i think with the business side of things um just on a side note, I completely left my art page is off Instagram. It was just too distracting and I feel like I'm, I don't want to sound pompous, but I feel like I'm better than that. <laughs> I don't need, you know, I don't need that pull to constantly promote, you know, and, and yeah. I needed that focus to, to be in the studio. Um, and if I'm ever sort of promoting anything, it's, it's more this, you know, high pay. Um, but ha having, having a family as well and also a gallery, of course, helps to, pr yeah. to promote too. Well, picking up, picking up on a couple of points there. So first of all, my dad has always said that he will show anywhere with whomever. Um, he's keen to, you know, be seen alongside other people. You know, this is where my <clears throat> kind of limitations as a criminologist come in. Um, you know, we are having conversations with people about kind of pairings of his work with other artists. Um, you know, I think it would be great to see his work alongside Francis Bacon, most obviously. Yes, I was, was going to say Francis Bacon, Turner. especially with the meat, you yeah. know, element yeah. at the, the very beginning. And the beggars. Um, we're also having conversations about Bowling and Turner. I think that'd be fantastic. I saw the um, 
the uh, Mitchell Monet, the Joan Mitchell uh, retrospective and the Mitchell Monet at the Fondation Louis Vuitton. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this year, it's like, okay, that is how to do a, you know, a pairing. Absolutely stellar. Wow. I think it'd be great to see dads work alongside American abstract painters like Rothko and Newman and so on. But I also think that dad's work is relevant to, you know, younger contemporary artists. I would love mm. to see his figurative work made in the 50s mm. and the 60s alongside contemporary figurative painters. Um, and I guess then, you know, that kind of moves us on to this question about the kind of the commercial versus the museum side. Mm-hmm. So this was something in my ignorance never really occurred to me, which is that, um, you know, it's a massive divide between the commercial gallery and the museum there world. Um, sort of private know, and public. Private and public, um, institutional, for legacy, um, not for sale. I was going to say not getting paid. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, um, and so as a son um, with the responsibility to make sure that dad's work appears, you know, becomes part of the um, sort of art firmament. Mm-hmm. The challenge is to kind of have getting that balance between developing, working with curators to 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 work on museum shows that the public get to see over a longer period of time. I mean, the SF MoMA show it opens to the public on Saturday and runs right through until the autumn. Oh, great. Um, I'll get to see it. So excited. And it's kind of, it feels kind of, you know, absolutely public, right? Okay, you've got to pay to get in, but, it, you know, it feels like it's a public space. Um, the commercial gallery is free to get in, but, of course, this is about making works available to 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 collectors and usually mm-hmm. for a relatively short period of time. Um, so getting that getting that balance right, I think, is absolutely crucial i mean you know got to pay the wage bill for the uh for the studio team we've got to you know pay for the storage and keep everything going um but i just wanted to pick up on the um the instagram question um Mm. i was just more it was more of a point really not not quite a question but it is very frustrating i think a lot of people are leaving actually yeah (laughs) I i mean i i feel that um social media is important because it is the medium through which many people experience art and culture. All right, not everybody's going to go to the museum. I mean, it's literally the case that not everybody can afford to do that. It's true. Um, but the fact that my dad had no commercial representation in England until, you know, the 2000s. It's and, just insane to me. I just can't yeah. believe it. I can't believe and it. Then, and then I think, obviously, being with a gallery like House and Worth is incredibly important. It has been a game changer because of their galleries yeah. all over the world. It's one of the top five in the world, top top four in the world, yeah. And I mean, my experience of them is absolutely lovely people. I, you know, the yeah. the, the the founders are, are great. The people we work with on a day to day basis are brilliant. Mm-hmm. They they have you know museum quality curators and you know at, at every level. Um, but um, I would say that if you want, as we do, we want Frank mm-hmm. Bowling's name to become a household name. You know, exactly. there are many, many other artists who have been promoted in various different ways by commercial galleries, through the press or whatever. Um, I think there's a, there's, a, there's a remaining sadness that because only a kind of a small group of fans were, were aware of his work through the 80s, mm-hmm. that his impact on other artists is amongst a kind of select few. There are many artists, younger artists like yourself, who have you know, acknowledge and recognize and revere his work and maybe have kind of been influenced by it. But his his um his capacity to reach other people mm-hmm. is, you know, relatively has been relatively limited. So I think of Instagram, you know, to some extent even Facebook as a way to reach a wider audience. Not yeah. it isn't about commercial, you know, I'm not saying you were suggesting that. It's not about kind of commercial promotion. It's really about getting people to see the work. I mean, when Hausenworth posted the uh, a video of the um, of the of the of the of the lights at Piccadilly Circus, that reached more than two hundred thousand people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to my mind, this is like you know, all right, six hundred people came to the the members preview at SF MoMA last night. That's great, you know, fantastic. 
I think a thousand people came to the opening at Tate Britain. But by comparison with the way that kind of televisual, you know, media yeah. reach people. Um, I mean, another thing that we're doing there to kind of engage the public is that we're here. We started working with primary schools. Oh, but that's amazing. How do you how are you working with primary schools? I know you're limited on time right now, but how, yeah. how are you um, so, doing that? Um, after the Tate show, apart from apart from the grand <laughs> grand nephew work, yeah. working and doing his his part, yeah, <laughs> well, he's doing his bit. Yeah, well, he's only two and a half, so he's he's, he's a little early, but he does love it. Um, I think so. How this came about was that after the Tate show, the Tate retrospect, Tate written retrospective, we started getting letters. You know, people, um, you know, writing letters or emailing. Um, and some of the letters actually came with artworks kind of, you know, in no. in the envelope saying, here's what my my primary school done, uh, ch- primary school child has done at school. Um, would you come and visit? So Susie, uh, my wife and I, we went, we went, started, you know, we've been to been to primary schools. Um, I had one, you know, hilarious experience was I was going into the school, the seven year old says to me, so you're Frank Bowling's dad, are you? And his friend goes, no, 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 stupid, he's his son. He looked at me <laughs> like, if you're Frank Bowling's son, why are you so old? <laughs> but, uh, you know, the um, uh, abstract painting reaches six and seven-year-olds in a way that I don't think any other art form can. You know, And if you think about English art education, which in my experience was absolutely woeful, academic, boring i mean how can art education be boring it's like music education it's yeah de- you know it's, it's 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 desperate so we're working with primary school teachers um with the uh we're working with goldsmiths in their um art education so um teacher education so working with primary school educators mm-hmm. i think we've got about 100 uh, trainee art teachers who are taking bowling materials out mm-hmm. into primary schools and the we, you know, the talks that we do, the primary school children just love looking at the work. And when you give them the paint and their aprons and their wellies, and they start squeezing paint over the surface of the canvas and throwing they love it. Stuff and glitter, they absolutely love it. And it's like, you know what? It's really true. Anybody can make art. I agree. And I think art teachers have difficulty teaching art because they say, I can't do art. I can't draw. No, this is something I I, I abhor. I, I occasionally teach, and I taught at Dulles Picture Gallery during the Helen Frankenthaler show, and I, and it was in the style of Helen Frankenthaler. So, you know, the the kids loved it. It was the par- parents who said, "No, no, no, you must do this. You must do. This. You must keep titles." Like, no, no, just let them. Like, let them do it. Let them have free reign. And it was usually the parents I had to tell them off. You know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I think that. Um... You know, it's it's a couple of things. One is that what's not to like about small children loving making art, um, but also there's not just the, the making, but also understanding something about the making of art and the place of art in the world. I mean, the use of, you know, it relates to geometry. It relates to, you know, chemistry. It relates to colour. It relates to... Um, you know, uh, being a human being, I think. Yes, exactly. So, natural, um, natural yeah, expression. They're loving, they're loving it. Look, I know you're really short on time, but I'd love to ask you three questions. <laughs> okay, great. Excellent. Um, and thank you so much for for doing this on behalf of your dad. Thank you for having me. It's been a great pleasure. Really. Oh, that's so, good. Hit me with you. Got questions for me? They're going to be hard ones. I don't know. We'll see. Um, <laughs> Okay, so one, the first one is, you know, I asked my guests, uh, who would be your three inspirational people? Um, who who would they be for Frank? I know it's a big one. I, I don't even know how to answer this, so don't worry oh. if you can't. Although you have mentioned Turner, um, you know, English landscape artists. Um, okay, who would be? And it's not just in the art world. Yeah. So I think... So speaking for him, it's like a kind of a dinner party question, isn't it? Who would you have? Um, yeah. Turner would be there for sure. Yeah. I think he would have a lot of questions for Turner. I think he would like to have his mother back. Um, Agatha Elizabeth Franklin Bowling. I'm sure that uh, he would have her there. 
Um, he's inspired by the writings of Dante. So maybe we could have Dante, Agatha, <laughs> Elizabeth, and Turner for dinner. How's that? Sounds great. I'd love to talk to Dante Alighieri about l'inferno. Um... Absolutely, he's you know there are <laughs> there are references to uh, to the to to um, to the inferno in the work, mm -hmm. and he's preoccupied by those kind of questions. Um, yes, yes, the 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 spiritual aspect, which I'm sure yeah. in his career he wasn't able to talk about, like many abstract artists. I'm I'm thankful that he led me gave me space to talk about this because I I have come out of the spiritual closet and I am a mystic and a lot of what I do is mm -hmm. is uh is spiritual um so thanks again he, um, to your dad as a, as a child was able to read the future he was his mother took him to seances in uh, in Guyana he was born with a call which is the you know with the amniotic sac over that so he was marked as a seer from childhood he lost it at adolescence he's like me I'm a seer um, too. <gasps> oh my gosh! He That's he talks beautiful. about it in the interviews with Mel Gooding that are in the British Library, on the British Library website. It's um, it's fascinating. I think it was a fresh egg and water that he he was encouraged to use as a way to read. Yeah, there there are ways to do that. There's also ways to get rid of the evil eye with uh, egg yolk as well and water. By the way, um, that's a practice anyway. I could talk talk about this um at, at length um but I know you're limited on time uh last what was the other question um two more. two more and they are they are um well one of them is well they're both very difficult to be honest uh three tips and tricks like what would he offer what what would Mr Bowling offer as a as a tip or a trick uh, maybe even in the, in his practice okay I'll do my best. Tip number one, don't prime your canvases. Uh, flood the canvas with liquid paint with, in, with boiling water and washing up liquid so that the paint soaks into the canvas and becomes a physical part of the canvas and then build layers from there. Uh, second, Thanks. never listen to the critics. Just Big get work. on with your just get on with your work. Never listen, certainly to the naysayers. Um, the people who smoke up blow smoke up your back passage, and the people who are over complimenting you, um, the naysayers, the critics, don't listen to any of that stuff. Just keep on making. And thirdly, go to your studio every day. Just keep on working. Doesn't matter whether you're hungover or feeling down or whatever it is or feeling kind of um, like you don't want to do it. Just get to the studio. Keep on making every day. Wonderful. Um, That's easy for me to say because I'm a criminologist and I don't have to. <laughs> the second one is a big one for me. I've had a huge assault online and there's another reason harassment left it. Um, last one. Word of wisdom or words of wisdom. What would be your father's, do you think? Never give up. No, never give up. You know, when you're 89 years old, in constant pain, disabled, uh, keep on going. Just whatever it is, you just, you know, decades of without recognition, um, years where you are basically bartering, um, paintings for paint and for food where you know nothing sells where you know you're carrying paintings knocking on the doors of museums his archive is just replete with letters to the royal academy to the tate senior people at the tate saying you will never show here uh people saying you will never show with our gallery um I'll keep faith in yourself never give up oh wow amazing Ben, thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and for um, the words that you have spoken on behalf of your dad, but also as a representative of the bowling family. I really, really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed it. I did enjoy it. Um, um, thank you so much. I really appreciated meeting you. Look forward to, you know, to hearing the podcast. Thank you.
And thank you so much, Hypey listeners, for tuning into this episode. Please do share our episodes far and wide to whoever you feel needs to listen to this episode or any of the other episodes that we have published here on Hype A. You can listen to Hype A on your podcast platform of choice, including, but not limited to, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcast, Audible, and so many more. Please do make sure to rate us on your podcast platform of choice. Give us five stars. This season has mainly been all about the art world. As you can see, as you have paid attention, it's mainly been a focus on the art world. Season five, which is going to be dropping autumn, winter, is going to be a women's only season and women identifying people season. Also, people in the arts. So make sure to stay tuned for that season when that's dropping. Please also make sure to follow Hype A on Instagram under the handle Hype A Voices, where you can find out some more news. We have a website, hype-a.com, with some incredible guests, archived material there, as well as a new blog. So stay tuned and make sure to check back in on the website during the summer. Thank you so much and God bless. Take care and ciao for now.